Hey there, Freedom Fighters. My name is Andrew Warner. I'm the founder of Mixergy, where I interview entrepreneurs about how they built their businesses. And one of the early people that I interviewed here is uh, the founder of AppSumo, ended up creating a fantastically successful company. But in the beginning, when I'd ask him a question about what he'd want to do, I remember what he did was he would go onto Skype at the time and just text a few of his customers and say, do you think this is a good idea? And then he'd get a response back immediately. And that's how he would decide whether to do something or not. And I wonder, and I think about that a lot because I wonder, do other companies do that? And then also what happens when they hit scale where they don't just want to Skype or text message people? Do they just have a tastemaker? Do they just have instincts? Is that what they base these multi-million dollar decisions on? And well, Dan Leahy says maybe it worked that way before, but that's not the way it should work. He is the creator of maker sites. What they do is they allow companies to reach out to their existing customers and customers like the ones that they're pursuing and basically do what Noah Kagan of AppSumo did, but in a more organized way and in a more scalable way. And I invited him here to talk about how maker sites has grown with that idea in mind. And to do that, I, um, got two sponsors. The first is a company that he uses to pay his team. It's called Gusto and I'm signing up. They're going to be the people that I use to pay my people in 2020. And the second is HostGator, the company I use to uh, host my website. Dan, good to have you here. Thanks, Andrew. Excited to be here. Thanks for having me. <laughs> um, what's your revenue? Uh, we don't share our, our revenue publicly, but uh, we've maybe some context around scale where yeah. just that's 70 folks. Um, we work with 10 of the 20 largest brands in the world. Um, we And we just raised our, our Series B of revenue, or some revenue, our Series B of funding, uh, and raised a total of, of $37 million across a few rounds here. Okay. And uh, brands that we'd be familiar with who are working with you? Uh I've got Ralph Lauren, New Balance, Made Madewell is a customer. Wow. Yep, all those. So we have both brands on those sort of large scale, as you mentioned, and then also just some of the fast growing um, direct to consumer digitally native folks, so folks like Taylor Stitch and Faraday and, and MM Lafleur. So we yeah. uh, we try to keep our uh, kind of a pulse on both parts of the market because they're both really important, and, and both will have a meaningful role on what how retail is evolving, which is quite a bit. How is this different from a survey with like SurveyMonkey that somebody could send out and say, do you like this style watch or that style? Do you like this type pants or those? Yeah, so there's, um, I mean, th there's a few differences. So um, one of the things that we support is th the breadth of decisions, the product decisions that an organization needs to make. Uh, it's, it's pretty meaningful. So some of those larger brands that you mentioned, the New Balances, the Ralph Lawrence of the world, they're making 10,000 styles a season that they are considering. And so you don't have something that is actually catered towards assortment scale sort of testing, yeah, you can ask one-off questions with, with tools that are kind of very flexible and not industry specific. And, and those, those tools are great. Um, but if you're trying to operate it at scale, it, it's really difficult. And it's really important to be catered to, to a specific question. But being specifically focused on a specific question has other benefits, whereas we have measured purchase intent on physical products almost 2 billion times uh, since we started our company. And we get sales data for products once they actually hit market that uh. we use to, to power our data science and power analytics. And so we have our own kind of data set that no one else has of like, how are products resonating with consumers pre-market and how do they ultimately sell in market? And we are able to build uh, analytics that combine those two to give you a sense prior to making any sort of production decisions, how the products are likely to resonate with your consumers. So you spend more resources on the things that are, are resonating uh, and less on the things that don't. 
you know what? I was thinking it was going, you were going to focus on the way that you ask questions, the way that you bring images on, the way that it's designed to feel like the company's own material and the backend communication that happens between departments. But I didn't think of that, that you also have sales data to come back and say, in the past, people have said this, here's what they did when we actually saw the results. Do you have an example of something like that that was unexpected? Oh, yeah, all, all the time. I mean, we see, uh, you think about if you're designing something, whether it's a physical product or a software product, you're mm -hmm. going to, if you're put in the amount of love and care that, that is required to create something that's differentiated, you are necessarily going to be hugely biased. Um, it becomes your baby. It's very easy to fall in love with your own creation. So you will very often see products that are kind of, of one of two flavors. First, a designer community is really interested in it, the more sort of avant-garde uh, consumer is, but it doesn't have a sort of a widespread appeal that um, might justify a big uh, inventory position in that product. And so that might be a great product for you to produce. It could be a great thing to have on the front of the catalog or on the front of your website. But if you get caught with a ton of inventory there that it doesn't sort of, uh, kind of align with the amount of demand that exists, you are stuck with cash that is sitting in that inventory and that you can't reinvest in your business. So that can be a real drag. And the opposite is true also, like you will have a product that you might think is niche. You might think it's just like, hey, let's bring some people in and create excitement. But you sell out of it in the first week. You can't get back into it for three to six mm. months uh, because you didn't realize how widespread that appeal was. And so we see both of those flavors a lot. And we want to help people identify what are the opportunities that we're not leaning into enough? And what are the risks that we want to make sure we're, we're tuned to as we make our inventory positions? Got it. All right. And let's let's go back now and understand how you came up with this. You are someone who already had a company before. It's called Savored. It's a company that you launched and you sold to Groupon. This was back, uh, you launched it back when you were still a student, right? Uh, soon after. I did a, a year stint of investment banking post-college and we launched oh, the, the company in 2009. Okay. Um, at Silver Lake Partners. I see it now, right? Or Brown Brothers Harriman. Brown Brothers Harriman. Yep. Brown Brothers. So help me understand what Savored did for local restaurants. Yeah. So if, if you think about a local restaurant and you think about from a simplified perspective, their, 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 their P&L, uh, they have very high fixed costs, which are the rent. You need to have a, a chef who's there no matter what. You're going to have to probably have someone at the sort of host stand. You have the electricity. Yep. Uh, and then they have the variable cost, which is, which is the food and the drink. And, and they're hard costs for, for providing those. Their markup on their, like the, the food and drink is typically somewhere around 70%. Um, but it's a very low margin business in general because those fixed costs are hard to compensate for. You're going to have to place with a lot of foot traffic. And so what Saver did is we said every table that you are not turning, that you do not have butts and seats for, you are losing money that should be profitable and, sh and, and is, is, uh, is inventory that you're paying for in those high fixed costs. And so what we allow you to do is actually tier your prices based on variations in customer demand patterns very similar to how a price line would work with hotels or airlines, which is like, hey, a, a seat that flies with no one in it is, is a miss. And so as long as we can charge full price to, to, to a certain amount of our customers and then be able to offer incentives or a lower price to, to drive that incremental buyer, that is going to be the uh, kind of optimal. How are you supply. doing that? It wasn't like you were sending out digital menus for the restaurants to give their, their uh, guests so that they could change prices based on how many other people are sitting. How did you do it? So where we first started was we went to general managers at a restaurant who, I mean, they live and breathe customer patterns. They could tell you uh, next Tuesday at 4.30 PM, how many people do you think you have at 6.30, how many people do you have? And of course there are things that throw that off, but in general, they're very attuned to that because that's what makes their, the business go. So where we started is we went to business managers and said, 
what inventory and inventory in this context was tables, which tables are you not turning with confidence that you can say, um, if I give them to you, I have no real risk that I'm going to cannibalize my full price tables because I need people at those times. And so our initial inventory was basically the, the, the tables that these restaurant owners were pretty sure we're not going to, uh, to get butts and seats for and, and fill. And then we could then go to a consumer and say, hey, these, these business owners are willing to offer an incentive to drive um, people at these times. If you book this time, you can, you can kind of benefit from that incentive and, and get it. And so that's where we started, which was like a, kind of a sliver of the available inventory. As we started to gain scale, though, and we had more and more restaurants on our platform and as a real, more and more consumers, we we've started powering actually the deal platform for OpenTable. Um, so OpenTable, I wanted to get into daily deals. At that point, uh, Groupon and uh, TripAdvisor were the only public company options for investors to be able to invest in the daily deal sort of craze. I'm oh, sorry, OpenTable and, and TripAdvisor because OpenTable had a daily deal segment. We were the one powering that um, because we had the best inventory. And so by giving them our inventory, we got access to their data. What that meant is that we could autom in an automated fashion, ping these restaurants inventory systems and identify when there were, if there was a bunch of rain and then the, all the tables were empty, we could see that in the system and, and put it on. It wasn't just relying on what a, a business owner said a few months ago would be available. How did you get the consumers in your mailing list? Uh, yeah, it's a, that, it was kind of funny in the early days. So the very early days, we would go to restaurants. And we'd be like, hey, the system is great. It's going to really help you. And they're like, I've never heard of you. Why would this help us? We're like, trust us. If you give us some tables, you're going to get some good diners in. And so people are like, all right, well, I'll give you 5.30 on Tuesday in New York. That might as well be like <laughs> uh, 2 p.m. dinner slots. And uh, they're like, I see what you do. So our very early restaurants, uh, we would have all of our friends. Uh, we were kind of soon out of college at that point. We'd have all of our friends be like, I need you to dine at this restaurant at this time. Like, I'll give you 20 bucks. We'll subsidize a little bit. And then we'd all pretend we didn't know each other. And so we'd have these like small restaurants like the West Village in New York where uh, it's like 530. You kind of look around and it's a bunch of your friends from college. And all of a sudden, this business owner is like, holy cow, like, I've <laughs> never had a restaurant full at this time. And all of a sudden, like, this thing really works. It's amazing. And so they would open up more inventory and more restaurants sort of came on. And it's a bit of it. I mean, it's a chicken in the egg situation. Um, and it's sort of two sided marketplace like this. Um, and so what we were able to do is a first few restaurants through like a, an early mailing list and some like early kind of small time press, uh, we were able to like start building both sides of that marketplace. Uh, then once we had enough credibility with some of these top restaurants, we got covered by the New York Times. That was a, a huge boon to our business, both in New York and in, in Florida. Um, and, and all of a sudden that sort of marketplace started to build. But we had to sort of create through kind of like grit and spit that first uh, that, that first uh, supply side or demand side to get that supply rally. And the way that you the offer that you made to consumers was come and we'll give you a discount on what you order if you sit at the tables through us. Exactly. So typically, um, we would we'd simplify. It's typically thirty percent off your food and drink if you dine at mm -hmm. these particular times. So a meaningful discount. But again, remember seventy percent margin on this on that food and drink right. restaurant. So it's a win for them if they're getting a profitable diner at that time. It's a win for consumers, uh, and, and it was kind of the supply demand imbalance that is a former econ major. You, you talk about a lot in theory, and then you're a bit of a hammer looking for a nail when you go out into the world. And that this found like a felt like a cool example to to actually make it work. And you were charging $10, I think, at the time for people to buy this opportunity through you. They pay you 10 bucks. That's your profit. Yep. Then they sit down at the table and they pay 30% less and the restaurant gets to keep everything as long as they bought a ticket through you. That's it. That's exactly right. Okay. And then 
I read in Fortune magazine that you were talking to Groupon before the IPO because Groupon, before Groupon's IPO, and Groupon wanted to get into the reservation system. And this was kind of their way of getting into the into the reservation system. So how did that work considering that you were working with OpenTable, which is a reservation system? Uh, yeah. Uh, well, so Groupon ultimately bought us. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, the we, way, I mean, the reservation system for us was not just, uh, OpenTable offers a reservation system, which is like, that's their core product. Um, it is a reservation taking system. Um, and they have consumer uh, community that the books through it. I booked two today on it. Um, what we were doing is our reservation system was actually facilitating a different offering, which is like a yield management. I want to get butts and seats in these slow times. Um, and so the, the, the reason we had a reservation system wasn't just to like make a reservation. It was if we had a reservation system, we could make a promise to a restaurant owner that uh, you will never discount a table that you can fill at full price, but you should never have another empty table in your restaurant. That's the promise. And so to do that, you couldn't just, where someone like Groupon historically had struggled with uh, working with the highest end restaurants is if you're a great restaurant, you don't want people buying a thousand Groupons and coming in on Saturday night and taking the seats that your loyal customers or your full price paying customers would pay. And so without a reservation piece, you couldn't do that sort of price discrimination that it's at the sort of core of the way a price wow. line works, the way that we work. And so it was a means to an end for us, whereas... Uh, uh, for, for someone like open table, it's their core business. Okay. And then you got to a thousand restaurants. You're smiling as you tell me about this, a thousand restaurants in 10 cities. It feels like madness to get restaurants to agree to even see you. They pride themselves on being dicks, right? They write books about how arrogant and annoyed and like annoyed they are by everyone. And then you've got to go in there and be a brand new person to them and close the sale with them. And, and tell them that they should implement technology from some guy they never heard of. That seems like a really painful task. Yeah, I mean, I, I think s- selling software software to SMBs is a, is a tricky thing, and so I don't know. Uh, There's some SMBs that are more eager for software than others, right? Like if you if you talk about online businesses, like the people who are listening to oh. us, yeah, the, you throw another app at them, they'll sign up and they'll be happy. You say it to a butcher, forget it. I think that's right. And I think if you were going just for like, what are the, I mean, it, it, that cuts both ways because the the industries that are most apt to have adopted technology in the past are going to have less sort of wide open opportunities for, for new sort of software. So, but, but, but yeah, I, I, I mean, I, we're not in the restaurant industry now. Um, there's, there's, for a reason. there's a reason for that. What, what, what I would counter though is restaurants are an amazing business and every person who's running a restaurant is an entrepreneur is so creative and they go into that business not to make more money but to like create a space for people to come and enjoy themselves and there is a there's a level of energy around that industry and there's a level of passion with the people that you're working with that actually doesn't feel super different than uh, a startup itself whether that's software whether you're starting a new restaurant and so i think there was Part of what drove the connection between us and our partners, part of what drove people to come work at our company and allowed us to recruit exceptional people is like there, there's a romance around restaurants. There's there's a real tangible value they're delivering. There's a real risk these entrepreneurs are taking when they start their business. It's not an easy business uh, for them to run. And I think that that bond between a, a startup company and versus like these public companies that they kind of begrudgingly use for their POS systems or, or reservation systems or like that, they're like, us against the world mentality, I think, mm. is very similar in startups and in restaurants. And that, you know, you, you kind of feel like you're, uh, you're 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 on the same team, you're fighting the same fight. And I think that that connection can be pretty powerful. 
Did you talk to Groupon before their IPO? Uh, we did. Um, and we would see them. I mean, not, not only that, we would see when we would sign a restaurant and the restaurant owners would tell us the, the second that they went on on uh, Savored, they would get an email from Groupon, from Living Social. From <laughs> so we were like, we were seeing them in the field a lot. Um, and so that that's what led to some of the conversations where we were consistently winning in our segment of the space, even though we were this kind of tiny company out in New York. And, um, and that, that's where the sort of interest came from. But yeah, we, we'd see them in the marketplace a lot, along with other competitors. I mean, like for a buyout, but as the more you, the more you talk about how many restaurants you talk about, the more I remember the story you told our producer about how as a kid, you did the thing I did too. You would write to athletes to get their autographs. I did. I mean, Sports Illustrated for Kids back then used to have the addresses for practice facilities for these sports teams. And like, I had no idea. I used to buy these books with addresses of celebrities <laughs> and and athletes, and I was pretty deliberate about who I mailed. I think I should have done what you did. How, what was your approach? Uh, I was a uh, it's a numbers game sort of guy in my uh, uh-huh. in my, my outreach. So yeah, my, my my parents were always and still am. Uh, uh, big handwritten note people. And so uh, they're like, hey, you'd be surprised what you get if you ask. Your and parents so, would, would write handwritten notes to people? Well, I would. they were big on like thank you notes and all this sort of stuff. Okay. And, and so I, I would write handwritten notes to all these athletes and um, I'd sometimes include a picture of myself or whatever it is. We've got the whole US ski team to send something once. Uh, but yeah, I, I would think of like, hey, who are the athlete? Who are the kid people in the NBA draft that I like the most? And I'd write to them and say, hey, I hope you join the Celtics. And my name is Dan, and I play on my basketball team, and I'd sure love your autograph. And 95% of people never write you back. And that, that 5%, if you're writing 100 a year, like you're getting a meaningful It feels amount of, great. What yeah. are some of the ones that you had? I don't remember any of the big ones that I had. I just remember the experience of opening it up and seeing that someone totally. would not just do my card, but add more of their own stuff. Uh-huh. You know? Uh, yeah, I mean, a bunch. I mean, remember Pavel Bure, I was so excited about. Uh, I remember Mo Vaughn, Mo Vaughn's mother. The word got out that his mom was friends with uh, the nurse at our school. And so through her, I, I sent a note and uh, you, you get to someone's mom and, she, and, and that was wow. like, like, he sent his own picture and autographed it. Um, I've got a whole bunch. Uh, I mean, I wrote to, to Michael Jordan once. Uh, I love the Bulls with, with family in Chicago. And uh, my parents took a picture of it because I wrote a note. I said, dear Michael, you're my, you're my favorite athlete there is. If you're ever in Maine, where I grew up, I'd love to hang out with you. Um, can you see? Can you please sign this uh, card? P.S. I wish you were my father. <laughs> my parents thought that was a very funny touch, and my, my dad found it more uh, more funny than, uh, than that was. Uh, that was my. Did he write back? I'm assuming he did. No, I did not. Get back. Yeah, I'm I stuck with my own uh, father and uh, and didn't get a microphone. Uh, it seemed to have worked out. And then I I always would look up what an autograph was worth. But I never sold any. Did you? Like, I was no. obsessed with. I'd get the Beckett and like up, update my yeah uh, my like personal portfolio. I was like maniacally. I mean, I still have it when I go home. I have like I have a Western Conference NBA folder and Eastern Conference. It was like oh, and you kept it as like a portfolio where you'd update your list of of, I mean, uh, of your best ones. That was like wow, yeah. That was like cachet among your friends of like, oh, you have that one, you have this one. That's um, that's exciting. Part, of the, part t- of the joy of it too is like I I, I mean I I probably bought individual cards like five times in my life it was always you buy the pack or like at christmas you got i don't know a, a thousand cards and you, you go through every single one to yeah see what you sort of got and like that that joy and the randomness and the, the sort of random surprises was uh yeah that was it 
a real I hear Gary Vaynerchuk talk about going to the conventions as a uh-huh. kid. I remember my mom would drive me out there and then I would just go in and look around. It was just a bunch of older dudes, but they they got it. You know, they they felt excited to see that there was a kid who got into this. Mm-hmm. All right. And so I'm seeing then also that kind of hustle come through when you were going to restaurants. I'm assuming you were emailing them also. You were going well, you, you were emailing them, right? Honestly, they don't use that much email. I mean, I think the general <laughs> manager of a restaurant is behind a computer maybe 20 minutes a day and they're okay. making like they're they're trying to figure out the, the food shipment that was late. They're they're less like trying to find tools to optimize their business. So it was feet on the street. You go in, you have a drink, you ask who the manager is, you ask if they're willing to talk. I mean, our sales team over time, like I'd say more of those conversations were started at 9 30 PM, the normal business hours. Wow. It was uh and you show that you like the place. You show that you brought a date there. You show that you like that sort of, hey, do you respect my business is a really mm-hmm. important sort of trust to develop prior to get them to adopt something that's new and feels a little bit like interesting, yeah. but scary. So Wait, it's so very personal. You basically pay for your people to go take their girlfriends out to restaurants that you wanted to work with? Well, it's, it's, I mean, it's interesting. The, the restaurant system, uh, the industry has like a real barter world to it. And so... Uh, it was so more like these, I mean, our salespeople in these markets, I mean, they were the cream of the crop in terms of getting like great tables or anything like that. Cause they befriend these owners, these owners were like, I mean, when we walk into a restaurant that we were driving $20,000 a month in incremental revenue, we were like conquering heroes. Like they brought out trays of like shots and food. <laughs> I mean, we ate ourselves. Like I probably gained 20 pounds in our first wow. year. We were just, uh, and so, but that's they, after the sale. Before the sale, they would have to sit and order a drink for their husbands. They talk yeah, to just, the person. Yeah, you're. I mean, building those. And we weren't. We weren't necessarily paying for those those drinks. But but it was. Um, that was kind. Of, I mean, there's the people are really attracted to that. That is a a way of doing business that is like is very different than sitting at a desk and dialing for dollars. Where you're going to some of the you go to five cool restaurants in an afternoon mm. and you try to catch a manager and you you try to connect with them and. It's it's hard work. Don't get me wrong, but, but I would I would hate that. I remember talking to Michael Evans from Grubhub, and he he would do that in the early days, just go knocking door yeah. to door to door to door. And I don't think he got electrified by it. He was just like, "All right, this is what you got to do." Yeah. Um, all right, and so you did that. Why did you sell? Uh, I mean, to, to to what we were just talking about, I think what we realized is. as you sort of hit a certain scale, a company like that is a local sales business. I mean, you just need, we were in 10 markets at the time that we sold. Uh, OpenTable raised and raised and spent over $100 million prior to their IPO. Um, and that, I mean, I guess that doesn't sound like a ton given how much is raised today, but that was 15 years ago. Um, it's just really expensive to scale a, a national uh, sales force and to have like people on the ground selling and serving these customers. And it wasn't like our thousandth restaurant that we signed was like that much easier to sign than our 500th. And so it, we had, we created a bunch of value for, for our investors, uh, for, for ourselves. And um, it, it felt like timing was good. And, and, and we had the sort of someone like Groupon is excellent at a great go to market motion. They've got, I mean, excellent yeah. local sales. They're kind of like the modern yellow, the yellow pages was excellent at that 25 years ago. And, and some of these great local businesses were that. And so, we, we had, had a good product, good offering, good good sort of customers, and, and it made sense um, to combine. Is my research right? Did you sell for what fifteen to twenty million? Uh, I don't think uh, I'm able to publicly share. Did you personally become a millionaire from that? Uh, that's not something to talk about. You can't say that. All right. Um, 
was Fortune right in saying that you talked to them before their IPO and you should have talked to them, that you should have closed the deal before the IPO? Uh, I wouldn't, I mean, at the, I wouldn't say so. I mean, Groupon's IPO was really interesting. It was, I mean, the most hyped IPO of, of what I remember in that sort of whole decade. Um, and then there was a whole, will they or won't they sell to Google and so much yeah, else going exactly, on around exactly. it. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, no, I don't think, uh, we did have conversations with them prior to that point. Uh, when we sold it, it was post IPO. Um, and I don't, I mean, at the time it was disappointing. Um, but, uh, in terms of the first first dance, but then, um, but I think the out- ultimate outcome was was better for for certainly better for us. Why do you think that this does not? I'm looking at their site now. If you go to saver.com, they redirect you to Groupon, but they tell you to that you can type in reservation in this. Let me see. I'm going to type in reservation in the search well, box. Grubhub Grubhub actually purchased it from Groupon. Uh, oh, they did. Okay. Yeah. But it's still not like a massive part. I I don't understand why this doesn't exist. Why isn't it like a natural for me to say, I'm willing to go to a restaurant. I'm not super eager to go 530. I'll get a sitter at 530 or I'll adjust my work if I get something for it. Even if it's just like, Mm -hmm. don't worry, the the host will take care of you. 530 is when you get the host's attention. At 530 is when the owner comes over and checks out what you're up to. Anything like that. It still doesn't exist, let alone what you did, which is I'm going to give you money up front so that I know I have this spot. And yes, I'm going to eat at five o'clock instead of eight when I prefer to eat. But I get something in return. I get to taste this restaurant at a little bit of a discount, and it feels better. Why doesn't this exist throughout the market? I'm frothing at the mouth, dude. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's a. I think it's just an expensive business to grow. Um, I, I think. I mean, if you're ACB, but Groupon like- and Grubhub and others are already, and even um, Open Table, they're already in Yelp. They already have these relationships with the restaurants, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, it's a good question. I, I don't. I don't know. It's one of those things where, like, you hear other entrepreneurs get really excited about it. People have. I mean, people just launched savored knockoffs. Certainly, um, I, I think it's. I mean, I think if you get a sort of SaaS, uh, if you're going to sell into this space, I think getting a SaaS type revenue stream is just something that if you're going to really invest heavily on your on the ground motion. Something like SaaS is like much more predictable, and so I think I think market local marketplace businesses mm. are just hard, and I think the unit economics, whether it's in the restaurant space or others, like a marketplace that's local, there's only so many that have been successful. I think people are instead turning to like, okay, POS tools have like totally been revolutionized during during COVID. And yeah, like, like the, the thing that I tip on whenever I buy something now, like that changed really quickly, and that's like that's a hardware, that's a subscription, that's just like I think it's a little bit more attractive and more predictable of a business than building all this infrastructure with the hopes that this marketplace is going to um, to work. It is frustrating. There are a lot of things that just seem so logical that are not going to work in restaurants. And part of them is that the logic is not, it's not helpful. Like the founder of Seven Doors told me it was illogical for him, a guy who had all this money but not much time, to go and wait in line to get into a restaurant. And he thought, well, if I could just show them how much money I have, they'd let me in. And the restaurants didn't want the douchebag who had the money. Uh-huh. Right? So so maybe what I think is logical actually does not make sense when it, when it comes time to the actual experience. All right. But here's what is logical and does make sense. Um, 
Gusto, the company that I'm going to be using to pay my people next year, you use them. Are you connected enough to the business to know why you guys are using Gusto? Or is this like something that seven layers down happens? I do. I mean, I, I, I log into it probably once a week. It's uh, it's just so easy to use. Um, it is it is an enjoyable experiment experience. I get in and get out and, and get what I need to get done. Um, and it's just a very easy way, whether it's like looking at our sort of payroll trend, whether it's reporting, whether it's just uh, activating a new employee. It's easy for our employees. They get paid on time. I don't have to spend a ton of time on it. It's a good experience when I'm using it. That's critical for me. I don't want to spend a bunch of time on it. I'm still doing this stuff myself. I've, I've had other people do it, but I want to see, I want to be aware of how much we're paying for people. Um, and then I don't want anything that's going to slow me down. I don't want anything that I'm going to have to log in on a special device that doesn't fit well on any other device. Just let me pay people and move on. And also, I'll be honest with you. If uh, Imad creates Mercury Bank, I'm signing up for Mercury Bank, right? Or if someone else comes up with something else, I'm going to sign up for those things. And truthfully, haven't had any issues with Mercury, but some of the other things that I mess with might have might cause problems. I don't want my team to suffer because I'm experimenting. I, that means I need somebody at Gusto to be there and help me out if I run into trouble. And they're all about that. So anyone out there who's listening to me who wants an easy payroll solution that your team is going to love, that's going to make it easy for you to pay, that's going to just get out of your way. And that, frankly, if you listen to my interviews, you've seen how many of my past guests have used Gusto. If you want to sign up for them, I'm going to give you a URL, which will frankly give me credit, but also let you use them for free for three months. Here it is. It's gusto.com slash Mixergy. G-U-S-T-O dot com slash M-I-X-E-R-G-Y. All right. After the sale, did anything happen like fun? Did your life change in a positive way before we we go into, boy, I can't believe it's halfway through. Once again, I'm not going to do my second sponsor. I don't even know that I have time for it. I'm so freaking fascinated by you, Dan, that we just spent half an hour, I realized, talking about your baseball card collection in your past. And we haven't even talked about Makersite's the biggest win. But Let's talk about just one last thing with Saber. Did you buy yourself anything nice? Did you did anything big happen? Was there a good like finishing line here? You know, it's interesting. I you, you think about a I think when you first start a business, you think especially coming from an investment banking when you first start a business, like you think about how they exit and that's going to be this. this <laughs> and yeah, you can get like a, a little bit nicer apartment and you can maybe do it like a trip or two. And so there are certainly some like creature comforts that come with it. I found myself surprisingly quickly afterwards thinking back to like, man, like we had a good thing. Like we had when we had forty people <laughs> who were just like all rowing together and like going head to head with some like big competitors and winning more than our fair share. Like that was pretty neat. And 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 honestly, thinking about more and more, like, okay, how do we get back to that? That's like, <laughs> our big company. And so I don't know. Maybe that's like the curse of being an entrepreneur, but. Honestly, I think I, I thought back and, and reflected on on what it had been much more so than like what it allowed to do, and that really informed. It. I mean, I, I think I mean it, it sort of kicked off the, the the discovery and the search around maker sites, and then I think also just informed like what really mattered when you had a little bit of perspective and how do you be really purposeful about creating that in the next company. And I was much much more thoughtful about that in starting. Like what? What really stuff. mattered? I mean. I think working with exceptional people who you like to be around with and who are extremely talented, like that is motivating to the right folks. And like, if you can get that, if you can get, it's almost like there is a work world equivalent of being on a winning sports team. And I think many people are conditioned. I probably assumed in my mind that like you get out of high school. I mean, I was a high school athlete and nothing beyond that. Um, we kind of assume you're going to get to the working world and you kind of commit yourself to like the drudgery that's associated with that. And, 
And you realize like, no, that doesn't have to be the case. Like you can be part of a team that is like, that is ripping, that wins together, that is like motivating to each other, that is growing. And, and, I, and I think that that environment of being surrounded by just super high caliber folks who want to win together and, and like being together, like that's pretty unique. And I, I think startups are well suited to to attract that sort of crowd because you have like an upside orientation versus just trying to like keep an existing business from from deteriorating. You, you, you have like an energy associated with it that I think draws energized people. And um, and so I, I, I knew pretty quickly post Savored that that was that was an environment that I wanted to spend my time with. That's where I got the most energy. That's where I thought I would be most successful. And that's where the learning curve is honestly the, the steepest. And you could like, you could have your own personal trajectory be at a much higher higher level if you're you're putting yourself in a position to be challenged and putting yourself in a position to be wrong all the time and to, to maximize for that upside. What I was sensing from your conversation with our producer was that having the right team was more important to you than having the right product. It was like, let's find the team. Let's decide which kind of customers we just don't want to go back and service or go and just in service for the first time. And then with the right team, we're going to figure the thing out. Am I right about that? Totally. I mean, my so my co-founder Matt and I for the first week of working full time on maker sites, we went up to Maine, where, where I'm from. We went to a cabin with no Wi-Fi or anything, and we spent our first week not, I mean, not focused on like what, our, what was our product going to be, what was our pro to it, our go to market. It was like, what do we want our company to be? What do we want? What do we want it to feel like for someone who was working at our company? How are we going to recruit and retain exceptional folks? Because oversimplification, yes, but our perspective is. If you are tackling a big enough problem and you have a reasonable enough solution, if you can recruit and retain exceptional people, you will be successful. You will build something meaningful. And I think more often than not, that is the case. And so, yeah, you, we talk about tactics a lot now, but thinking about what is an environment that you can create that could recruit and retain exceptional people, that's what we spend our time thinking about. Um, we actually wrote that week a, a promise to employees in, in terms of uh, what they would get if they came to maker sites and in terms of the environment that they would get, every new employee joins still gets that initial promise that we, what we wrote. And yeah, I think having the opportunity to be purposeful about what you want to do and not just have culture be a byproduct of like uh, of whatever else you're building. That's, uh, that's something I think you hear second time entrepreneurs are, are much more thoughtful about. And it's definitely something that we paid much more attention to. And I'm really glad we did. What's one thing that I wouldn't expect that's significantly important to you that you had to put it in that conversation? Um, I think the, I'm not sure if this is obvious or not, but I think the, the highest caliber folks, uh, they're going to want autonomy um, and they're going to want more responsibility than they would have in other opportunities. Like that is your best currency you have as a startup. Um, and so yeah, it's one, one thing to say that, but you need to be purposeful about if you want to really create autonomy, like, what does that mean? Does that mean like you're going to come down someone's throat when they make a mistake? Well, like, no, that's not going to be living up to that value. Does that mean you're going to hire people who've only been there, done that? Like, no, because like that, that person is going to find those sort of job responsibilities less as a step up than they were in the past. And so I, I think thinking about that as a currency and being really purposeful about how you set yourself up and how you celebrate success and uh, how you sort of guide and coach. Uh, that's probably the single biggest one. Maybe it's obvious, maybe it's How not. How do you guide someone to do So you know what you're saying? Actually, it reminds me of a conversation I just had with Andrew Monday. He was the first hire at Grubhub, just went off to create his own uh, company, Local Kitchens. And that's what he said he loved about Grubhub, that he could actually, excuse me, DoorDash, excuse me, DoorDash. He says what he loved was with DoorDash, 
He could just go and create a new city on his own if he wanted to. He could take on the whole legal work of the company and he need if, if that's what he wanted to. And he'd look around at like the people at Uber and all the other companies he was talking to. They were all actual lawyers who were doing the legal for their companies. And it's just like, just him. I wonder, how do you create a culture where you could do that, where he could take that on without saying, we are not going to handle it. And if somebody just steps up, fine. How do you, how do you delegate it instead of just neglect it and let somebody come in and, and do it? I think the, I mean, I think the biggest difference from startups and other companies, um, at least in my example, my, my experience, I, I've, I worked in investment banking for about a year and then I've been in startup since start. The biggest difference for startups is you are maximizing for upside. You are not trying to minimize your downside. And that, and that sounds, sounds maybe trite, but what that means, I think is with a startup, you have an opportunity to paint a picture and get everyone bought in on like what is possible and then be a lot less specific on the how, because it's not like, I don't know, it's not like the how has to be that, but we have no idea what we're doing in many cases. And so giving people that, I think spending much more time on like what would incredible success look like, and then providing sort of guidance or experimentation and celebrating failure in the sort of pursuit of that. I think that is something that when you don't have a kind of uh, a cash flow business that a ton of people are relying on, that that is kind of like keeping your, your focus, it's, it's liberating in a lot of ways. And, and you, there's no like sacred cows that you need to make sure you're preserving. Like everything is in service of getting towards that sort of upside. And so I think that orientation in of itself really shifts what someone who's, what success for your first salesperson looks like, what your success for the first like customer success person looks like. Mm. It's just going to be different when you're trying to build versus maintain. I like the way you phrase it too, that you need to focus on the upside, not protect the downside, that that's, that's what it's about here. All right. So I see where you're going. You said, we're not going to go after restaurants. We want to think about bigger customers, right? Not small, medium-sized businesses. And then you also said, what's another industry that hasn't taken on technology the way it could? How'd you land on, how'd you land on the fashion industry? Yeah. So, yeah, so, so thematically, really like the idea of easy-to-use technology today that you could put in the hands of actual practitioners to kind of uh, help find these opportunities where supply and demand aren't meeting today and they could meet more efficiently. Like that theme I liked a lot. Um, and that was very relevant for, from, from Sabre. I, I think in terms of business who wanted to create, we thought there was a few things. First, I wanted to build a multi-decade company. And so as a result, I want to be in an industry that I'd be interested enough, excited about to spend multiple decades in. Uh, and that cuts a lot of things off the table. Um, secondly, we wanted to have an average contract value of at least $50,000. And that sounds kind of random and, and, and it, and it is, it's actually not a financial metric or it's not, we didn't think about it from a financial perspective, but we wanted to think through how do we create an extremely customer centric company? Um, how do we make sure that we weren't just building the things that we thought were, were neat or important, but we were actually building to serve the needs of our customers. And we thought that if we forced a constraint upon ourselves to have 50K for average contract value, people are going to give you 50K for something that doesn't solve a need for them. And so we, we, prior to even determining what businesses, we were looking at things through that lens of, okay, where could we go to be in an industry that has meaningful needs at the sort of intersection of supply and demand that would be exciting to be in for multiple decades um, and that would have the ability for us to provide so much value to, to individual customers that they're worth over 50K. Retail was the first industry. Honestly, it was pretty adjacent to where we had been. My co-founder was, was the first employee at Birchbox. Um, so in the beauty space, restaurants are maybe a form of retail. Um, so 
we, we early on had inklings that the restaurant in or the, sorry, excuse me, that the retail industry would be an area where they had this sort of characteristics, but that was just a hypothesis. And we went out and we spoke to 300 people and we spoke through everyone from practitioners all the way up to C-suite investors and board members. And it, we asked them a, a script that was like pretty similar across each of them, which is like, what makes or breaks your quarter? What makes or breaks your year? What are you most fearful of? Like what is changing in your industry that you haven't adapted to? Like, where do you not have data where you wish you had data? And what we started hearing again and again and again so frequently that we couldn't ignore it was the processes for retail brands creating physical inventory is basically unchanged since the early 80s. And the early 80s was really when Eastern manufacturing opened up to Western companies and you could make these big bulk orders overseas. And you also had kind of uh, media, mass media in the US, whether it's Super Bowl ads or, or billboards, you have this like, this ability to really control consumer demand in a lot of ways. Retail industry came up in that in that era and it created a ton of wealth. And as a consumer back then and when this model was created, I didn't have that much choice. I, I mean, I, I grew up in Maine. I'd go to the Maine Mall once a year with my mom to go back to school shopping. And I'd walk into the Gap and I'd buy two shirts from the Gap and I'd walk into the Foot Locker and I'd buy my back to school shoes at Foot Locker. And like, that was my universe of available products. Like if I had 60% of the shelf space at Foot Locker as a brand, like I was probably going to sell about 60% of the, of the products. And so what we learned is like distribution was destiny back then and brands optimized around a world where they really controlled that consumer demand. But all of a sudden that's changed. In the last 10 years, that's changed really meaningfully where as a consumer, not only can I buy any product in the world from any brand in the world with the click of a button, now I don't just get information from what's available in my local stores. Now it's not just the billboards that are telling me what sort of boxers to buy. I'm getting user-generated content. I'm seeing reviews online. I can stream a runway show if I want on Instagram. And so these gatekeepers have fallen that historically really control the access to consumers, but the processes for developing products to serve that consumer hasn't shifted at all. And once we got, we were attuned to that dynamic, it was like, this will have to change. There's no way that brands are going to be able to create, continue generating waste at such an unsustainable level, unsustainable for the environment, unsustainable from their, from their own business perspectives. Something had to give. And, and we set out to, to create that platform that could allow brands to modernize the way they created inventory to align with a more modern consumption for, for consumers. And from the beginning, you were thinking, let's find a way to bring the customer in to get, get feedback. You were. Yeah, okay. I mean, we, we are, I'd say, our, I mean, our, our company mission is we want to dramatically reduce waste in the retail industry by helping uh, brands become radically more consu uh, responsive to their consumers. Responsive in our mind has always taken two forms. Responsive is I want to be more informed, like kind of data wise in terms of what consumers want. And I want to be more efficient um, in terms of how I bring products to market. Most large scale brands have an 18 to 24 month process for going from concept to shelves. It's, it's pretty insane. So it's very hard to be kind of right. Even if you're right, if you're two years out, you're going to be wrong in two years. Often. And maker sites, it's, maker sites is working on that too. Uh, not yeah. just what do consumers really want, but also how do we make it faster? Exactly. And that, but that's relatively recent. So we've spent our first four years. So when we, from the beginning, we said, hey, these are the two components for responsiveness. This, if you think about how the software industry evolved from like the, the waterfall process where I start working on Windows 2012 in, in 2008, like that's how the world worked. Um, we think retail is going to go undergo a similar shift where it's going to be far more agile. It's going to be much more attuned to consumers. Um, and so from the beginning, we thought those are the two components, more informed and more responsive, but or, or more efficient. 
But when we started, we're like, okay, who are we as a startup going to be to tell the largest brands in the world, to tell the New Balances, the Ralph Lauren, the Nordstrom's like, hey, here's a new process that you should, you should take on. And we just started our company six weeks ago. And so I, I, hope you, uh, I hope you trust us. But what we did think we could do is, okay, let's take their existing process and let's start with the existing process and let's inject value data for them at key moments in time. So at least in this existing, like slower to market inefficient process, they're going to have better data about what their consumer wants. They're going to have like, call it like a GPS system to kind of know the path. Once COVID hit, though, and so we spent our first four years doing that. We started with direct-to-consumer brands. We scaled up to, to, to large enterprise brands. I'm happy to chat about any of that. Let me just pause yeah, on there. Good. So at that point, that's where, like, I think you told our producer, Taylor Stitch was the first company that you signed. I like their stuff. It's actually, I'm kind of lost in their website. I've never heard of them before you. They're like a men's brand that makes you feel like a, like a man without <laughs> feeling like, right? Like, you have to have an axe in your hand or anything. Exactly. It just feels, it's got a good feel. Um so I could see how a company like that would work with you. They're online first and probably only, I think, right? You probably reached out to them through a friend or cold called. You didn't need to spend a lot, months and months getting them to yeah. say, yes, let's try it, right? Uh, yeah, absolutely right. And the product that you had for them looked like what? What did it do? Yeah, so I mean, very, very scrappy version of what we have today. So our our two hypotheses prior to like hiring people prior to raising money prior to really anything was like, okay, this will only work. We think that the, the, the consumer's data point is going to be a helpful addition to brands decision-making process. If that doesn't work, like we have to find a new business because that, that's some kind of core crux of what we're doing. And so that really came down to two sub hypotheses. First consumers would be willing to provide feedback to brands that they cared about, um, which we felt pretty strongly about, but we needed to prove out and consumers actually know what they're talking about. Consumer, intent measured pre-production would actually be a, a valuable signal to brands to help them attune their kind of supply to um, to market demands. That second one was much more controversial when we got started. Many brands thought at the time consumers actually don't know what they're talking about. They don't know if it's good until, they, um, until they've seen it. Um, my role as a merchant or my, my role as a brand is to kind of create that demand. And so we didn't necessarily fully believe that. Um, and so we needed to prove that out. And so what we went to these early brands and said, we're going to create a really on-brand way for you to engage your own consumers. It's going to look and feel like your own website. You said you're on the Taylor Stitch website. It's got beautiful imagery. Like we wanted to create a modern experience that that mimicked um, these these DTC brands who, who've invested so much in their brand. And so we're going to lead consumers through that process. They're going to see some future products on our platform. They're going to indicate in a structured form their interest in buying those products, and then they're going to be redirected to your e-commerce. So that was the only product in the early days. It was a way to to take a consumer that was directed to us via social media, via an email, um, have them go through this process where they're evaluating products and then send them to the outerwear page of, of the website, whatever. An existing customer? Existing customers. In the early existing days. customer that you would then retarget on social media, bring back to a page that you created that looks like their site that asks them, would you buy this, essentially? Yes, and, and the messaging Give is- Give me awesome. more detail, yeah. Yeah, so, so the messaging is something like Taylor Stitch. Uh, you're on the website, sustainability is an important part of, of their business. They don't want to be creating a ton of waste. And so what their messaging would be, they'd actually typically reach out on email, email their email list and say, hey, Andrew, um, we'd love to get your feedback on some future products. We don't want to create stuff that you don't want. And so help us make sure that we are only bringing to market products that you're going to love. Consumers love that. Um, and so yeah. particularly today's consumers. Uh, and so- a consumer clicks in, you get that email, you click in, you come to a maker sites hosted, but Taylor Stitch branded experience that looks and feels like their website. Say, hey, I'd love to get some feedback from you. You click in, it looks and feels like e-commerce. Um, you can see multiple images, you see product description, you see price, 
But instead of putting down your credit card, you are indicating in a structured format your purchase intent for that product. We have asked that question in the exact same way for the half million products that we've tested. Um, but, but at that point, that was it. You get redirected to e-commerce. All we had was a raw data download of like every single consumer and their responses. And then we would do everything else manually. And so we would take those thousands of responses. We'd analyze them in every which way. We'd think about how to weight them. And we'd just present it back to the brand and some like interesting takeaways of like, hey, like, you, the same consumers likes this product and that product. So like maybe you don't need them both. Or like this is by far the most popular. And, this, and so we didn't have any sales data to back it up with. It was mostly like, hey, we're going to capture a bunch of data. We're going to show you something interesting. But then once sales data started coming in from these brands, we could start to, to correlate the two and say, hey, here are some signals that we can see in pre-market sentiment that correlate to in-market selling. Uh, once you prove that out, I mean, the scale of investments that brands large and small are making on inventory are such that, I mean, on average, we drive a 5% margin lift by helping brands reallocate their inventory between products that don't resonate so well and those that do. You start to extrapolate that to large brands making multi-hundred million dollar bets every single season. And all of a sudden, that like DTC data point uh, became pretty meaningful for these larger brands. And that's how we sort of scaled up to those more enterprise uh, type accounts. And direct-to-consumer DTC brands were the first ones to say yes because they're more willing to experiment. You get in, you prove they're also willing to just look at your random spreadsheets that you hand create because they're scrappier too. Then you take that and you go and get big brands to pay attention to you because now you've got data. How do you even get big brands to respond to you? I don't think you or your co-founder have any, uh, your co-founder's name is Matthew, right? You or Matthew have any relationships with those bigger brands, do you? Uh, no, not really. I mean, leverage alumni networks. You you ask I me, mean, tell every single friend what you're doing and ask like college friends if they know okay. everyone. I mean, kind of the same way we started, to the, started talking to those first 300 people. By the way, among those first 300 people that we spoke with, a bunch of them, we said, hey, we'll keep you, in, we'll keep you informed. We'll tell you how things are going. And so... That was definitely a great lead list to be like, hey, that thing we talked about, we actually built it and like, I'd love to show it to you. And so all that said, like early days, you need to identify who are the early adopters. And that's a very different persona than the type of people who we're, we're necessarily targeting today. We looked back at our first 10 customers and there's some, I mean, a lot of like eerily similar characteristics among the people who first pounded the table to take a risk on microsites. Like, Often they hadn't spent their whole career in retail. Often they had come from an industry that was much more analytical. Like even the, like most of them were in their early thirties, late twenties. Uh, you have like, you have these patterns you start to see of the people who are like maybe, uh, I don't know, hypothesizing, but less, less tied to like the old way of doing things who are like more eager to make their mark. They want to like try something new and win. And so you start to identify uh, what are the characteristics of the people who will pound the table for an early stage company. And then you start seeking them out at all costs. You can ask questions in the early days to figure out like, is this, is this someone who's going to be a friend or foe? And, and you try to do your best you can to align with the people who will pound the table for you. Uh-huh. All right. And then you were starting to say earlier, COVID hit. You know what? Let me take a moment. I, I keep missing my ad for HostGator. And it doesn't even have to be long. All I have to do is say, my site's hosted on HostGator. If you want good hosting that's inexpensive and just works and will scale with you, do what I did. Go to hostgator.com slash Mixergy. When you use that URL, they're going to give you a bigger discount than everyone else has. And frankly, the price are already low anyway. And so get it even lower. Hostgator.com slash Mixergy. Enjoy great price, great service. So yeah, tell me what happened for, um, for COVID. I wouldn't have thought that would impact you. Yeah, well, I mean, it impacted us a lot in that, I mean, it impacted our industry a lot. So we're, we're, we're entirely focused on the retail industry. Retail was obviously hit very hard by store closures. Uh, I think at its worst, there were a million people in the retail industry being laid off or furloughed a week uh, due to COVID. And so 
the economic impact for our industry was massive. And so that, that, that influences us. Um, but once the, so very early days, what, what our brands were grappling with is a holy cow, we ordered millions of units of products that are now being canceled by retailers because retailers have closed their doors. Like, what do we do with all this excess and how do we stay afloat? But pretty soon after, I mean, so then every person is forced to work from home as, as was the case in many industries. And all of a sudden people said, okay, we've gotten over this like very early shock. We're now experimenting with dramatically different ways of us, our own ways of working internally. Like what are some of the things that we like, this may be a chance to reset. This may be a chance to look at the way that we do business and think through if we're going to be reinventing it, like we don't need to just like do a new version of what we have been doing. Like maybe we like truly think through how should we develop products? How should our functions come together and develop them? So we started hearing from a lot of brands like, hey, what are you guys hearing? What are, how are other brands making decisions? Like what are people doing when you can't get together and have these big in-person meetings to guide decision making? And there's a, there's a stage in many brands uh, uh, product market process where it's called line review. And line review is you literally pin up all the products in a wall uh, in a room and you get together and you walk around and you say, is this in or out of the line? And what's our sort of depth for it? That is how retail decisions have been made for a long time. Those rooms were closed and the flights were canceled to, to bring people in. And so all of a sudden you had an industry, I said at the beginning when we started, they weren't going to listen to us in terms of how they changed their process. But all of a sudden we had a bunch of credibility because we've been obsessed, obsessed with this problem for five years. We're working with a lot of the great brands. We have a perspective on how technology can help this sort of thing. And so what we, what we built in partnership with our brands is tooling and like a collaboration suite that allows teams across different geographies and different functions to come together to, to pull in the right information, to have the right conversations and ultimately make the right decisions on the products that they bring to market. And we call that a digital line review product. Um, it's been really well received. Um, and that's where we think of like that combination of more efficient and more informed. It's, it's finally starting to come to life and, and we're really excited about it. That's the part. That's the part that I saw before we got started, where it was the collaboration within, and that was within a team, and that was a post-COVID edition. And now you're deeper in their business, and you're you're, frankly, moving them to the future in a way that they would have eventually got faster than they would have gotten. Exactly. I mean, this was on the like strategic to-do list for every brand for the last ten years. But like, you know how strategic to-do lists go. Like, there's there's more items on that list than capacity. And and COVID was the first time where there's like, okay, this is this is mission critical. I should add, like, this is where the DTC and traditional brands are coming together. You have many traditional brands that were doing fifteen percent of their sales in the past on direct channels. That shifted north of sixty percent during COVID. And selling online, as you know well, is, it plays by different rules than selling in brick and mortar stores. All of a sudden, their competitive landscape is folks like Taylor Stitch, people who are digitally native, people where marketing teams sit right next to product teams, people who are used to looking at the performance of Facebook ads to actually inform their product. It's just a very different ball game than, than selling into department stores and just competing against other brands at the scale up uh, uh, to sell at department stores. And so what you're seeing is now people say, this is where the game is being played in there. I need to adapt my processes to be successful in this new environment. I need to be faster. I need to be more informed. And that's, that's a tailwind that, that's pretty helpful for our business. Do you think people are going to go back to retail the way they did before? I do. I, I mean, mean, to stores? Yeah. I mean, I, I think, uh, yes. I mean, you're already starting to see it. Um, I mean, people are mm-hmm. shopping more online than um, uh, than they were obviously two, two or three years yeah, ago. Yeah, but do you but, think they're going to go back into into retail stores and buy in person the way that they did before? I think so. I think brick and mortar retail yeah. is a lot 
is a lot more meaningful to the retail industry than most of us think, than I thought before prior getting into it. It's, it drives a lot of the sales. I do think the bar, like you're not going to go into stores for selection. I think that's the big difference. It used to be you go in, like there's so many better ways, primarily your mobile phone or your browser, if you want to get selection. You're going to go in to see what does a brand stand for. You want to see like, what is my experience mm. uh, with this brand? You're going to go convenience to see multiple brands next to each other. You're not going for breadth and that many retail experiences were built around that breadth. How many products can I see and sort of wait through? I think that is very much going away and you're seeing that in terms of like the, the share shift from like traditional uh, retailers to, but but I think there's a real need to go in person. People, people like it. It's a way to spend time. Gen Z like shopping in malls. Like there's a lot of these narratives that I think can be oversimplified. And I, think I hate definitely- going into stores. I did go into them recently. I said, you know what? We moved to Austin. We don't have any warm weather clothes. Uh-huh. So I took the kids in, um, and I was shocked by how often the the stores would shift me to online. The store was the place for you to see what you liked, but maybe not find the size that you're that you're looking for. Online is what they were looking to do and say, we'll mail it to your house. We'll bring it over here if you need it. We'll send it to another store. I kind of like that merging of the two worlds. Yeah. And I, I think there's people, both for the direct shopping experience and also just like as a way to spend time with friends. I mean, that is, it, it, it has been, and that is still a way that, that part I don't get, but I, I get it. I get it, but I don't get it. I get that I'm I'm not ever going to be that person. You know what I would love to see more of? I used to have a personal shopper. Look at me. I'm not dressed great, but I used to have a personal shopper who was so good who would take me from store to store. I'd like more of that. Like the in-person stuff should be more experiential. Yeah. And I, I could see that it's getting there. And I even think cura- curation across e-commerce is going to, I mean, I think personal, like virtual personal shopping, like could that exist? Maybe it'd be a lot cheaper and more scalable. I agree. I think curate, you're going to see this next level of curation, whether it's from retailers themselves or like non-traditional retailers and people like tastemakers. Um, I think it's a really interesting space. Who are going to do what? It might be, you're saying maybe an individual personal shopper who does the thing via Zoom, who then helps you find stuff online at stores and then tries it on with you when the stuff arrives, that kind of thing. Yeah. And then eventually maybe one store that carries multiple brands, products, but it fits well together. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan of Stitch Fix. I think Stitch Fix has built an incredible business um, and they are certainly a flavor of that, but I don't know if that's the only, I think that's that's just kind of the start of curation meets, meets supply, but we'll see. I just signed up for Stitch Fix. All right, I got to give them feedback. You just reminded me on what they sent over. <laughs> All right, uh, Dan, this is phenomenal. I'm excited to see where you're going with this. Frankly, I just kind of dig you as a person. I'm glad that we got to spend an hour together. And I think for anyone who's interested, they can go to Maker Sites. Are you guys in person now? If anyone comes in, if you're hiring people? We, yeah, we, we, off, we offer a mix. Um, we have offices in San Francisco, uh, Austin, uh, London, and Vancouver. Um, but we also have folks who are outside those, those hub markets. And I've uh, given people the option to come in. I've got... Uh, got a kid at home so it's a little bit of a this is like my sanctuary coming into the work but some people are doing their deep work at home so yeah we're trying to build a culture and, and processes that that are supporting both of those and, and we're hiring a bunch and so if folks are uh, folks are interested in checking us out we'd love we'd love to hear from you all right it's maker sites s-i-g-h-t-s dot com but you probably saw this in your podcast app and i want to thank the two sponsors who made this interview happen the first is the company that dan uses i'm using uh starting 2022 it's gusto go to gusto.com slash mixergy and the second is hostgator hostgator.com slash mixergy thanks